0: Well, it is a Super Bowl today, and so we, I thought we'd thought show you some of the best of the commercials. And if you look around TV, if you look around culture as a whole, there is this obsession with trying to be attractive. And today, we're going to talk about that. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for gathering us here today. Thanks for your love and your faithfulness, your constancy in our lives. Thanks for having a word to speak to each of us. You've, you've got a word prepared for each and every one of us. Even though our situations are different, we, we believe that, we trust that. And we ask that you would now speak. Help us focus on you, focus on the truth that you have to offer us. Help, help us learn about what it means to truly win. So come and speak. I offer myself to you, and I ask that you would have your way in me, through me, through us, that you might be glorified in all we do. We pray this in Christ. Amen. Now, you've all heard the old saying that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Uh, and if you think about what that means, basically what it's saying is that uh, it doesn't matter uh, you know, who you are objectively, that that subjectively, beauty is what someone sees. And so there, there's kind of this challenge in that statement that says, you know, if, if you don't feel beautiful, just wait around, and eventually someone, the right person, will behold you. They will find you beautiful, and that's all that matters. Which sounds nice, but it actually sounds pretty passive, doesn't it? I mean, what if you don't want to wait around for the right person to come and behold you? What, what if you'd actually try to like to work to try to make yourself Attractive, what then? See, the art of trying to make ourselves attractive, it has existed for almost, almost forever. You could go way back to the Garden of Eden where where Eve knit together fig leaves in uh, a lululemon fig leaf style, you know. Trying to make yourself look good in fig leaves. Now, all throughout time, there have been these standards. And thankfully, society has helped us out. They they say, you know, you don't have to wait for someone to to behold you. There are these standards of beauty that we can establish. And each generation will have a standard. And so if you want to actively work to make yourself more attractive, there are some some things you can do. And and up here, you can see how those styles have evolved over the centuries, starting back in the Renaissance, or the Renaissance, as some of you might say, uh, over on the left, uh, and then moving into the Elizabethan kind of time. Uh, Then you see the Georgian style with with the big giant hoops and, you know, heavily corseted. Uh, Moving into late Victorian era, into the 1920s. I mean, if you look at this, uh, some of that may be kind of barbaric or restrictive. And yet, it's helpful, right? If you were living during one of these times, there would be a standard for you. So, if you desired to be attractive, you didn't have to sit around and wait for someone to behold you and decide that you're beautiful. But if you wanted, you could actually pursue an image... ...of attraction. You had a standard or a template that you could chase after. Uh, But then in the 1900s, something started to happen. Someone cranked the dial way up in terms of rate of change as it relates to attraction. And so now, no longer did people live their whole lives under one standard... But now, if you were to want to stay attractive, if you, if you want to keep up with the standards as they shifted or evolved, you would have to do a lot of changing with the times. I'll show you what I mean. Look at the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure who that is. I don't know if that's like uh, James Dean or uh, uh, Marlon Brando or, or something. But, you know, 1950s look, kind of rebellious, uh, you know, square, muscly, rugged, you know, nicely parted hair. 1950s, uh, that's the standard. Uh, and then, you know, you go a decade or two later, and, uh, and that changes. Now, a decade or two later, you have to get really hairy. <laughs> and put on something tight in gold, apparently, um, you know, so, so if you started in the 50s and, you know, you got that down, you're, you're attractive in the 50s, time changes, and by the 70s, you're not anymore. There's a new standard you have to chase after that. Uh, then, then look at the 80s. Uh, you could keep the hair, but, but it had to get it right about here, you know. Um, the Tom Selleck look, you know, also rugged, put on a Hawaiian shirt, why not, um, in the 80s. Uh, and then the 90s really threw everyone for a loop, because in the 90s, it wasn't good to be rugged, you had to be young. That's way too close, isn't it? frightening. I need a makeover, I guess. Um, so so in the 90s, uh, you know, strip away all that rugged, handsome charm of Tom Selleck in the 80s. Uh, now it's now it's this boyish, young, clean look in the 90s. And then the 2000s and uh, to modern day has kind of taken that and, and made it a little bad, you know. So there's Adam Levine. He's got a long head. It's kind of weird. Um, but uh, you take that boyish look, you add some ink, you add a little more bad boy, you kind of put in a little bit of 90s with the 50s together, and you've got a new standard. Now think about how crazy this is. In some of your lifetimes, you've lived through all of these generations, and if you want to meet the culture's standard of attractiveness, you will have had to reinvent yourself with every decade in order to keep up. It's absolute madness. And yet, does that stop any of us? <laughs> Not really. Not most of us. No, 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 we still pursue uh, attractiveness. And you know what? I, I say there's nothing wrong with that, really. That the desire to be attractive is, is healthy. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you try to be attractive. It's, it's a good thing. To be beautiful in the eyes of others is no small thing. And yet, uh, this healthy drive to be attractive, which, which I say is a very healthy thing, can often lead us to very unhealthy places. I mean, just think for a second about all the money And all the time and all the energy and all the emotion we put into being attractive. Sometimes way too much. How many pictures did you go through until you found the perfect picture for your Christmas card this year? You know how many of you will fess up to untagging yourself on occasion from Facebook from a picture you don't like so that you can preserve that pristine, magazine-worthy camera roll on your Facebook photos? Or think about how many times you changed outfits before your last dinner party. Your husband will rat you out on that one. You don't even have to fess up to it. I mean, it's okay to pursue attraction, and yet sometimes you can go to an unhealthy place, and it's fed. This drive is fed by a whole industry of magazines and TV shows, of clothing stores, of weight loss clinics, of even a doctor's office who offer medical procedures, promising you that they can make you attractive for now, for today. And yet, what will that mean in 10 years? The standard will have moved, and where will that leave you? See, it's madness, and yet we all buy in because to be found attractive is to be found worthy. Now, now here's something that may surprise you. God wants you to be attractive. He really does, no joke. God cares about beauty. He's, He's the author of beauty. Do you think God doesn't care about beauty? He he truly does. And and I'm going to tell you today, we're going to look at it in a second, but there is a prescription in the Bible that will allow you to be attractive in a timeless way. Right? Timeless beauty, that's what we all want. We don't don't have to jump through all the hoops of culture. Timeless beauty is what we want. And there is a prescription in the Bible that will make you timelessly attractive, if you trust it, that will enamor you to many, that will get you respect and admiration— that will win you uh, love and and affection from people. And the standard is found in a book called Galatians, chapter 5. And we're going to look at it starting at verse 16. Now, these are the words of Paul. Paul was writing to a church in Galatia. And uh, you can look in your Bible right now. Um, You can go to your smartphone or your tablet and go to uversion.com. Go to the live tab, type in STL. You'll find the Bible verse. You can submit prayer requests that way too. You can give online uh, or you can look right up here. So, so, so pay attention. This is, this is Paul giving us the secrets of attraction, unlocking a secret to timeless beauty, timeless attractiveness. And he starts off this way. He says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So, so Paul starts off and he says, you know what, there are two ways that we can live. We can live by the Spirit, the ways of God, or we can live by the ways of flesh, the ways that come natural to us. And he says inside of us, there's this battle between Spirit and flesh. If you've been given the Holy Spirit through baptism, if, if God's Spirit rests on you, there's still this battle between Spirit and flesh, and they're trying to lead you different ways. And Paul's going to describe what ways those will lead you, depending on which one you listen to. So he starts off with the, uh, the, the flesh. He says, the acts of the flesh, you know, if you follow that way, if you follow that way, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, whatever that is. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now here's where we should all be having an uh-oh moment, right? Because somewhere on that list, it should have nailed you. It should have, it should have pegged you. It should have said, hey, this is something you do. And Paul says this really confusing thing at the end. He says, if you do these things, if you live like this, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? If, if you do any of these things, if, if you like to get in cliques and you gossip, if you're factious, if you're envious, if you, if you get drunk, that you're not going to go to heaven someday? Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he said. He said, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those things aren't the same. If Paul would have wanted to say, you're not going to heaven, he said, you will not get eternal life. That's not what he says. He says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, the, the kingdom of God, inheriting, inheriting the kingdom of God, it's more than just about life after death. If you go back and read Jesus, who originated this whole concept, starting in about Matthew chapter 5, you'll see that as Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, and this is kind of a, kind of an aside from what we're talking about today, but I think it's, I think it's so important, because verses like this are coming up, Again and again in our culture today, as we're in a culture war and we understand these wrongly. uh, When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's not talking just about life after death, he's talking about a hidden way of life. He's talking about a way of life that exists under the surface. That secret that's hidden that you have to dig for to find he talks about a way of living that all of us can live in the here And now that is especially blessed. Although it's incredibly counterintuitive. It's absolutely upside down That's what the kingdom of god is actually about And so what jesus is saying when he talks about it what paul is saying here Is he's saying, you know, sometimes you can give in to what's easier in life And that will cause you to miss Greater deeper things and we all know this to be true right? Um, some people are crazy runners in here. You love to run, and you're like, running makes me feel so good. I mean, have you ever tried running for the first time if you haven't run in a long time? And there's nothing about it that makes you feel good, right? <laughs> nothing. Less than nothing. I mean, it's awful. It's pain. And, uh, and, you know, if you quit every time you feel pain in the first minute or two, you'll, you'll, never, you'll never get to that place where it actually becomes something enjoyable. Uh, if you never stop learning to indulge into artificial, uh, you know, concocted uh, sweetness of a Twinkie, you're never going to figure out how good natural sweetness can be. Think, you know, the, the, the deliciousness of fruit and other things that God's given us that aren't mass-produced and crazy, right? See, by indulging what's easier, you'll miss out on what's greater. That's what this talk about inherit the kingdom of God means. It means that there is a way that you can get to, but but if you're gonna give in to envy, if you're gonna give in to all those things that are so easy to give into and they're easy to give into, right? I mean if you look at that list and, and you see that list and there's not something or several things on that list that we just read that, that are way too easy for you to give into, you're not being honest with yourself. Because that's the stuff that comes easily to us. It is so easy, no matter how long you've been on your journey with Christ, it is so easy to give in to those things. And yet if you always indulge those things, this is what Paul's saying, if you always indulge those things, you'll never get to what's greater. So you may indulge your drunkenness, and and that can be a fun life for you, but but if you never learn to kind of get that in check, you'll never discover a greater blessing that God wants to give you in life. You won't inherit the things of the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of Jesus. You won't find it. See, that's kind of what we're talking about in the series in a nutshell, that there is a hidden way, there is a secret way that is actually better than the world's ways, but you've got to learn to, to no longer indulge what's easy so that God can help you discover what's truly great. So Paul says, you know, these are the acts of the flesh. These are all the things uh, that, that aren't going to get you God's best. You won't get to inherit the reign and rule of Jesus and all of the the great things he has for you in life. And and then he goes on and he explains what living under the Spirit means. How you get to inherit something greater. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit. So the ways of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh. But now he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, sometimes known as patience. That's how I learned it. Kindness, goodness, uh, read the rest of this list with me. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, so there you have from Paul this, this list of behaviors that will not only help you inherit the kingdom of God, but these are the secrets to being timelessly attractive. Right there, Galatians 5, and 23. And some of you are feeling bait and switched right now. Because you're like, man, that's really churchy. Come on, that doesn't work. That's the way you become attractive? Of course. I mean, you've all seen this at work in your lives before, right? I mean, tell me you haven't seen this happen. A, A really beautiful person, someone that you deem physically beautiful. Have you ever had this happen? Someone you find really beautiful, you spend time with them. And after spending time with them, you're like, I would not touch you. Right? Come on, you've been there. I call it the Kim Kardashian effect. Right? You, you've experienced that. And you've experienced the flip side, too, where, where at first there's someone that you kind of write off and you think they're not much to look at, but you spend time with them. And as you get to know them, as you get to see their, their characters, you get to see some of those things manifested that Paul talked about, they, they, they literally become more attractive. You've all experienced that, right? If you're not sure, I'll just remind you that Jesus falls into that second category of people. Even the prophecies about him, they, they, they warned people and they said, you know what? He's not going to be much to look at. There's nothing in him that's going to be stately. There's not a lot about him that is going to make people want to admire him just by seeing him. And it's true. I mean, Jesus was a born in a no, nobody town to nobody parents. He was kind of a nobody. And yet people were drawn to Jesus by the multitudes. Why? Because of who he was, because of how he lived. Because of the fruits of the Spirit working in his life. Right, I can say that's true for me in my own journey. I mean, just for me, at least for me, I can say this is true that I don't worship Jesus because he's the Lord. I guess I have authority issues. That's not my reason. And I don't worship Jesus because he's powerful. I don't love Jesus just because he's the master of the universe who was raised from the dead. The reason I love Jesus, the reason I follow Jesus, is because he's good, because he's loving. And he brings joy into my life. And and he gives me peace like no one else can. And and he's so patient with me. And he's kind and he's faithful, even when I am faithless. And he's gentle. You know, in those moments in my life where where I don't need a harsh rebuke, I I just need someone to be gentle. He is always gentle. And he is self-controlled in dealing with me. Because if he weren't, I would have been smote from the planet a long time ago. You know, he uses restraint with me. I mean, that's the reason I love Jesus. That's the reason I follow Jesus. It's not just because he's powerful or because I have to. It's because he's good. It's because he evidences all those things that Paul talked about. He he is truly attractive. And and if you're someone sitting here today and and, and you're just not seeing it, I mean, you're learning about Jesus or you've learned about him and you're not understanding the draw, here's what I tell you, that on, on the surface, you're right. There's not a whole lot there. But as you spend time with him, as you get to know him, You'll see. You'll be attracted. You'll love him too. Just, just keep spending time with him. See, Paul says, if you want to be timelessly attractive, if you want to unlock the secrets of this hidden way called the kingdom of God, if you want to inherit that in your life and its blessings, he says, put on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And still, deep down you're not buying it, are you? I can see you. You're just kind of like, mmm, I'm not sure. You know, that's why we'd rather spend all of our time, our money, our energy, trying to pursue other standards of attraction, right? I mean, that's why today you're going to hear this message, and you're going to go home, and what's going to change for you? You can be like, yeah, that's nice, but um, we still got to do all this other stuff. Let me speak to those of you who are parents for a minute. That's why we who are parents, especially with young kids at home, that's why we spend more time fussing about how they look, how they dress, who their friends are, whether or not they're popular or athletic. That's why we spend more time thinking about what kind of job they'll get someday, worrying about their level of attractiveness to the culture around us. That's why we spend more time cultivating that stuff. And I'm not saying that stuff is bad, but that's why we spend way more time on that stuff than cultivating the stuff that Paul talked about, right? And and let me just share a moment of honesty so you can know how shallow I am. Because I am prone to shallowness at times, so are you. I mean, good company here. I know it. So I remember when we were pregnant with our first child, and uh, when you're pregnant with your first child, you know there's all kinds of worries and stresses that come into your mind. You worry about if the child's going to be healthy and if you're going to be a good parent, all that other stuff. Well, then at about you know 19 weeks, we went and we had an ultrasound, and I discovered that our first child was going to be a girl. And this new fear came into my head. This new worry. My fear was, what if she's ugly? Some of you have been there, uh, maybe some of you haven't, because you're, you're a little less shallow than I am. Uh, but you know, I'm thinking, what if she gets all the wrong combinations of features between my wife and I? I mean, my wife is this, this dainty petite person, she's got a very small head, and I'm thinking, what if she gets my wife's small head and my big nose? <laughs> like, wouldn't that be awful if she had to go through life that way? Uh, Yeah, again, I know, I'm that shallow. But, um, you know, I also know how cruel the world can be to to those it deems unattractive, especially those of you who are women, can be incredibly cruel. Now, I had that daughter. I've I've got another daughter. I've got a son. Both of my daughters uh, are incredibly beautiful. My son is really handsome. um, But at the same time, you know, God's been changing me about this. And I just see the world that girls are growing up in, and and God's been working on my heart about this, because here's what I see now. I see that beautiful people in the world are sometimes at a disadvantage about stuff that really matters. You know, if you're beautiful in the world, the world just kind of gives you a pass on so many other things that are vitally important. Uh, Beauty in our culture covers over a multitude of sins, and if you're beautiful in this culture, often what the culture will let you do is they'll let you be, be beautiful on the outside while you rot away on the inside. Paul uh, finishes up this section with some pretty strong words. He said, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's right up here. And he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And then he goes on and he says, Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. You know, if you meet the world's standard of beauty, at best what's going to happen to you is that you will become proud or conceited, or you will be someone who provokes others to envy or jealousy if you're not careful. See, God's changing my heart about this. And, and you know, outer beauty is not only a, a blessing. It can be a curse if you don't add to it things that truly matter, things that are lasting that will make you truly attractive. So now, uh, you know what I do with my with my kids? Uh, when we go to bed at night, uh, when I lay them down in bed, and I go in and I, uh, I, I tuck them in and I say prayers with them. I've been starting this new prayer. I, I, I don't pray for just health or safety or protection. Um, I pray for those things, but I pray for formation more than protection. I've talked about that before. Uh, but I started this new prayer, and I, and I, and I pray over this list, and I, I pray that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what I want. I want them to know God. I want them to know His Spirit. I want them to know intimacy with God, because uh, I know that if everything else goes wrong in life, that will be right. And, and then I pray through the list, And I pray that by God's spirit, they would have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Why? Because that's the stuff that matters. I know that. God's changing my heart about that. And so I'm begging God to do that in my daughter's lives and my son's life as well. But here's what else I'm doing. I'm reminding them of what truly matters. Growing up in a world that doesn't always value those things. See, See, let me speak to us on another level now. I mean, not to those of us who are parents, but let me speak um, about the Christian church in America right now. Uh, Many of us bemoan what it's like to live as a Christian these days. And uh, we remember days when we were at the top of the heap When we were the the pinnacle of society, where we had the mainstream, you know, under our control. And we remember how good that felt, to be on top, to not be marginalized, but to be a part of the mainstream. But culture has moved, it has shifted its standards of what attractiveness is, and no longer does it include the the definition of biblical Christianity. Or does it? Uh, This is where I might upset some of you, but just hear me out, because I think we need to hear this. See, when I look at the church in America right now, I wonder if part of the problem is, is that we don't give um, a whole arsenal of weapons to, to our critics by the way that we live our lives. I mean, if, if you're uh, someone who's new to the church, if you're just checking us out today, you know this to be true. And some of us who've been inside of the church, we, we forget what this looks like. But, but on the outside, looking into who we are, what does the world see? today. I think they see a group of people who are really angry, angry at losing status in power and influence, angry at a loss of control. Too often that's what they see. I think they see a group of people who are oppressive, who who want to deny freedoms to others, even though we're supposed to be all about freedom. Again, that may not be what we intend, but I think that's what people see. I think they'd see a, 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 a group of people who like to talk a whole lot about the sins of others and yet not acknowledge the sins that we all struggle with? I mean, in that list that you read when Paul was talking about the works of the flesh, which ones jumped out to you? The ones that you struggle with or the ones that other people struggle with too often? It's the stuff that other people struggle with that we, that we land on, that we crusade against? And then we do all of that, and we wear this kind of like a badge of honor, and we say, look, Jesus, they hate us because we love you. And most of the time, I think, I think, no, 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 they hate us because we're being ugly right now. This has little to do with Jesus. In fact, if we were following Jesus, if we were living up to his standard, it it would be totally different. See, See, some of you are about to tune me out, and yet this is what Paul is saying. He's speaking to this church in in Galatia, and they're kind of sandwiched in this interesting place. I mean, they're practicing a religion that is not legal. And so any of them at any time can be persecuted for their faith. They can be beaten. They can be arrested. Or they can be executed for their faith. And, And then they're kind of living between Rome, and they don't fit into Roman culture anymore. Because they're not living... Up to Roman standards, and and yet they're they're there um, by the Holy Land, and uh, and they don't meet Jewish cultural standards anymore. So they're basically people that are hated by everyone. Now, if if you find yourself saying, poor me, poor us, it's so hard to be faithful in this generation, think back to these people, literally, where, where they were under the threat of death for being people of faith. And yet, what does Paul say to them? He says, you know what? It's okay. Because there are some things that you can practice in your life. Things like love, joy, peace, and the whole rest. And he says, and you know what? If you do those things, if you cultivate those things in your life, no one will ever be able to outlaw those things. Paul says there has never been a law made against things like these. So if you can do nothing else, do these things. Because these things truly matter. But do we believe that? Not just as people. Do we believe that as a church? Just this week, a man by the name of Ron Zender died. Uh, his picture's right up here. And most of you have no idea who that is, nor should you. Uh, this man was, uh, was my pastor from the time I was about 11 or 12 till I think about 18 when, when he retired from the ministry. And um, Ron Zender was just an incredible man. Uh, one of the most beautiful men I've ever known. Just attractive in every way. I mean, in some ways, it was expected. He was, he was a great pastor. He was a powerful preacher, strong leader. He, he kept our church focused on the mission to reach lost people. And our church grew immensely under his leadership. It was really exciting to, to have him as our pastor. Uh, but the things that really attracted me to him were, were not the things that he did, you know, in terms of skills. It was more about who he was. I remember one Sunday sitting in church, and I was, I was still young. I was probably in, you know, middle school. And, uh, and he, he was there in front of church, and he started giving uh, a message. And he was just a powerful preacher. I always look forward to his, his uh, speaking. And, uh, and in his message, he started sharing about a struggle in his life, a struggle against a, you know, a very weighty sin and, and he began talking about this with just all kinds of openness. It was, it was shocking. It was scandalous that a pastor would talk about a struggle that he had had. And it was in the past, but, but it was while he was a pastor, a struggle that he had had with a very real sin. It was something that I had never heard another Christian man admit, let alone a pastor on a Sunday morning in front of his whole congregation. It's not like he lost his mind for a minute. There were multiple services, and he did it every time. And he shared the struggle. Uh, and it was when he did that that his, his respect in my eyes just went through the roof because I'd never known anyone like this. So many of the Christian people that I knew, they, they were trying to act like they had life together. They were trying to act like they were pious and holy and wise and, and all put together. And here's my pastor talking about this this great sin struggle he had. And then I started to notice that this was a way of life for him, this, this vulnerability, this, this authenticity in everything that he did. He did not need to be admired by people or respected as an upstanding Christian leader. As I really got to know him, I, I started to see that he didn't care about that. He didn't care about people's opinions. What he cared about was living his life full of the Holy Spirit, living his life full of lo- love, And joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. Faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He changed my life. He changed my view of pastors for sure, but he changed my view of what it meant to live as a a Christian man. But it was all about not some outer standard. It, It was about opening up his life to the work of the Holy Spirit and begging God to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in his life. Christians... What if you started measuring your life against this standard? You know, instead of all the things we usually focus on, things that we hope will make us attractive in the eyes of someone, what if we focused on this instead? Or or what if we corporately, as, as the church, started focusing on this list? If we all went home and memorized Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and we started praying for that for ourselves, if we focused on that instead of all the things that we usually focus on, if we got more excited than being filled, uh, more excited with being filled with the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit than we did about whether or not our doctrine was pure or whether or not we were crusading against the right or wrong issues, what if we measured ourselves against this standard of saying, am I a person of love and joy and peace and all the rest? Can you imagine how life would be different if every morning or every night before we went to bed, we prayed and asked God to fill us with His Holy Spirit and asked by name for these virtues? I mean, don't you think that would change everything? I mean, do you think that anyone in the world— I don't care what the world does in terms of pursuing its way around us and, and what culture says about us, but, but if you embodied these things in increasing measure, measure, do you think the world around you would find any fault with you? And even if they did, even if they accuse you of wrongdoing, do you think you'd care if your life is all about love, joy, peace, and the rest? See, I think this is so powerful, regardless of who you are. Whether you're a person who has, has kind of, you know, met that culture standard of attractiveness today, if you're sitting there and you kind of know that you're it right now, you, you've got it figured out, you've got the look, you've got the style, you've got the swagger, you've got it all. Even if you're that person, or whether you're someone who has never felt attractive in your whole life, the playing field is leveled right now. And what if instead of Pursuing those things alone. And again, it's not bad to be attractive. Put on nice clothes. Do your hair, please. Use deodorant when you come to church, especially. That's all good stuff. And yet, what if he started caring more about these things? Irrespective of your appearance. See, there is a secret here to timeless, true beauty that will cause people to admire, love, and respect you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, one day someone was uh, talking to Jesus, and he said, you know, those of you who are fathers, y- you know that you'll give good gifts to your children. If, if your kid asks for bread, are you going to give them a stone? If they're hungry and they ask for an egg, will, will you give them a scorpion or a snake? And all the dads in the room are going, of course not. And then Jesus says this, he says, well, then how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, today it starts with asking. So I invite you to rise on your feet. As we ask God to make us new and to fill us with his Holy Spirit, uh, you know, there, there are things that are so good that no human law has ever been made against them. And then there are those other things that we talked about at the beginning, things that, that only make us ugly, and yet so often in life, those are the things that we pursue. Those are the things we get fixated on. Uh, Today, I want us to have an opportunity to lay down those things.